title of this message, The Cosmic Extent of the Gospel. For where we will end this passage is not what we would think the theme would be as we begin this passage. The Cosmic Extent of the Gospel. In the great C.S. Lewis book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lewis writes in this mythical, metaphoric tale, Wrong will be right when Aslan comes to sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Let's stand for the reading of God's holy word, Romans 8, 18 through 25. Begin on page 1122 in the right-hand column near the bottom, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For creation, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes in what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And this ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. There's a connection here immediately with 17 and 18. So I want to walk through this text. Let's begin. Let's look back one verse at 17. He writes this. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And here's the covenant promise. Here's the if. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may be glorified with him. And then the connection with verse 18. Now he talks about the suffering. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So in verse 17, there's a covenant requirement. We will be heirs of Christ and we will receive the inheritance if we follow him in this life in suffering. And then in verse 18, he describes that suffering. But he describes it via comparison. What is the comparison here? These present sufferings, which are, and let me say this, the sufferings that I believe he's talking about here are sufferings that are unique to a Christian. We're not necessarily talking about sufferings as the world suffers, but sufferings as we who are Christians have our eyes open and we are aware of why suffering happens and the reason for it, and yet we still, to a certain degree, we can't avoid it. The world lives by fear management, conflict avoidance, suffering avoidance. Christians necessarily 
face suffering head on. In fact, sometimes we do the right thing knowing that the immediate response will not be one of success. Have you ever done that? Where you've had to have a conversation maybe with a relative or said no to something they wanted you to do that your conscience would say no to, knowing you pray that the Lord would have them understand, but knowing it will probably lead to more conflict, but you do it because it's the right thing to do. And your heart is your heart and mind are convicted with the Lord. Okay? That is the suffering of a Christian. But here what Paul says, this is present, it's unique to all, we must go through it. For what though? Here's the comparison. For future glory. So there's a comparison here. Suffering now, glory, future, but also glory revealed more and more in its fullness. Now I want you to think about this. This suffering is also compared here, and we might say it is the commerce or the monetary value or the toil we put in that we will receive back something, which is future glory. When you think about this in your day job or in your hobbies or in um, just the regular way your household works, you work and sweat and toil and you fail at times and you succeed for what end? Well, there certainly is a joy in working itself. There's a joy in being productive. But you do it ultimately for the paycheck, right? You do it for the result, the provision it provides. Uh, it is now the beginning of maple syrup season. And I know at least half of us here do maple syrup. Um, so what do we do? Well, this winter we trudge through knee-deep snow. We take out our DeWalt drill or whatever we use. and We tap a tree. We, let, we carry buckets of sap. We spend hours cleaning out those buckets, filling those buckets, days boiling it down, 40 to 50 gallons, 35 gallons of this raw stuff for what? Accomplishment. One gallon of pure maple syrup. It's a ton of toil, but there is a reward at the end. And when you get to taste that reward, it's worth it. Uh, maple syrup is not um, the most efficient way of getting reward. There are probably other ways of, you know, you throw a line in the water and maybe you catch a fish right away and it's a lot less work. But maple syrup, there is, you do it because there's a reward. There's a joy in the toy, but there's a reward at the end. In competition, in gardening, there is a toil and there's a waiting and there's a, there's a reward, right? You plant soon, knowing that you really aren't going to see much, you're going to see some first fruits, maybe Midsummer on certain plants, or really, you're not going to see it till the fall. So you're waiting months and months and months. But it's worth it. But inversely, you know that plants, good plants, don't just grow out of nowhere. If you don't toil, you get no product. You get no reward. This, of course, indirectly, is why the math of socialism or Marxism, critical race theory, doesn't work. It's giving out the rewards as a handout, but they're not earned. They're only temporal. And they're dehumanizing. Where there's no investment in the person, the rewards won't last long. That's why you recognize when socialism and all these things, it just doesn't work with human life, right? That's why wherever there's a lot of handouts and there's no expectation of humanity actually doing something and acting like human beings, there's an increase in homelessness and theft 
and laziness and demands and everything else right. Like if you treat people dehumanizing, they're going to begin to act like they're not human beings. But you know that toil and reward is just the way we're meant to be. It's from Genesis 1 that Noah read earlier. This is the way God wired it. You work, you get paid, you spend, you invest your earnings, and you don't starve. You may even increase your finances and holdings. Unless maybe providence or the evil of mankind would rob a person. That certainly happens. But the general way to think about it is we would increase. We would be provisionally blessed. You would, you know, uh, you know what this is like for those of you that are older. When you were newly married, you didn't have any money at all. And hopefully, <laughs> and then you maybe had a little bit and then you had a bunch of kids. And then you didn't have any money. And then all of a sudden they moved out. And you were like, wait, I didn't get a pay increase. How did this happen? Well, you're just not spending as much anymore. And so... Things just tend to increase. Homes build equity. All those things. That's just the normative way we should work. We don't, we don't work thinking, oh, I'm only barely not going to starve for the rest of my life. No, you want to increase those things. You want to grow every year. You may increase your garden every year. You may get better at it. Maybe you sell a product and you're able to sell it for more because you just are improving in your skills. That's the way life is meant to be lived. We recognize that providence or evil of mankind could rob us, but that's not how we operate. We operate knowing that there's difficulties. We've got to still work in the normative ways. Therefore, what is, therefore, in this text, what is the work that will lead to a reward for the Christian? Here, it is certainly more than, but it is not less than suffering. I think it is fair to say that what we talk about here is our suffering is a type of work that we do, or synonymous with work, that will pay off in a much greater investment long-term. A guaranteed investment. I think it's fair to say that suffering here is covers the gamut. It could include the suffering that would be extreme persecution, which is pretty abnormal. Uh, we certainly read the stories, but most Christians don't deal with extreme persecution. We might, we might not, you don't know that. Certainly in other nations they do, the extreme persecution of the, the loss of life. But on the other side, it goes from the everyday toil uh, on the other gamut, or sometimes denying yourself or saying no to your sins or um, delaying the gratification that sin might bring in the meantime. It's the suffering that comes from having to uh, be disciplined in the Lord, and you know that there's a certain amount of you're, you're, you're saying no to all these other options. And there's a certain amount of, 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 of you do that for the later gratification. Well, that's, that's part of suffering, too. You may be just the misunderstandings you receive from people. There's a whole lot relationally that we suffer. Um, our battle is against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And sufferings are when the world, the flesh, and the devil wound us back. Often they're internally with words, rejection, temptations, but sometimes it can be physical as well. This is why I believe it's synonymous when First Pe Peter says, you as a Christian are going to face trials, various trials of many kind. And when Peter writes that, it says it's been ordained for you. Don't act as though something strange is happening to you. No, this is actually the path that the Lord has ordained. Meaning, there's a universality of this description. This is every Christian's battle. Everybody will suffer. For here, suffering is synonymous with something else. It's it's synonymous with work and toil. It's synonymous with trials. But it's also synonymous with sanctification. We know that justification is the work that only Christ could do. He alone could justify us before the Father. 
We are sinful people. We can never justify ourselves. And his justification is finished. But a justified person will be sanctified. So meaning, will become more Christ-like when the Spirit works in you. You will throw off the old ways. You'll become holy. The Spirit works in us and through us, which is effort and obedience and suffering on our part. So God is doing the work, and yet we're doing the work now. We are suffering. We are, we are living for the Lord, and this leads ultimately for glorification in inheritance, rewards. But here, sanctification, what he's talking about here is it certainly is what does it mean to, you know, we read our Bibles, we obey God's law, we repent of sin, we're part of the church, we raise our children to the Lord. Those are all proactive ways of sanctification, but it's also, sanctification is also described as suffering. That's part of sanctification too, or a part of the paradigm that it's not just some days, it's every day. There are areas today you will suffer from the things that you want to do in your flesh and you're saying no to because you're a Christian for future rewards. Now, of course, we need to understand that this is denied, reduced, or even redefined by much of the Christian, we'll call it broad evangelical world today. I mean, think about this. The new apostolic reformation that uh, Justin Peters described so well last weekend, uh, how do they deal with suffering? Well, much of suffering for them is a denial of suffering. Suffering must be a lack of faith, a lack of victory in your life. Or suffering is something to cast out. It's a certain demon that's come upon you. See, what they don't believe is that sin in and of itself is indwelling. Uh, every one of these faulty movements denies, in, in, even if they say they don't deny it, functionally they deny original sin and the indwellingness of sin as, as a Christian. So often what happens is um, suffering is all those negative things that come upon you as others. That's very similar to what the, how the woke world operates, right? Uh, you know, your life, you yourself are a good person on the inside, or at least not too bad, and all, it's all external things. So you need to be, you're afflicted with, all, with sin. Your sin is, a, sin is a disease that's come upon you, and we need to cast it out. So in that way, the idea or the promise would be there is some sort of perfect utopian Christian life that presumptively would not include suffering because suffering is something to rid yourself of. We also see this in the kind of the therapeutic world that has really infiltrated Christianity. You hear that with the language. Suffering is seen as a negative consequence of your past, right? You suffer because of what others have done to you or because of your own past. Well, certainly could be true. But there's another sneaky way in which suffering is de denied or redefined. And I would say this is within the reformed world. We might call this the pietistic reformed world or the Anabaptist reformed world, meaning where, where, where uh, the, the gospel, certainly the, the emphasis of the gospel is, is, is emphasized with the doctrines of grace and that Jesus Christ alone can save us. But yet offering suffering is not something you do like we see here in, in scripture in union with Christ a path you walk with him, but suffering in an almost can become a badge of honor to prove how worthy and spiritual I am to Christ. Okay? We see this. We've seen this. I've seen this in the, the, the Christian kind of blogosphere the last 15 years where there's a real emphasis again on kind of moving away from that kind of happy-go-lucky Christianity. There's a real emphasis on suffering for the Lord. But it wasn't seen as suffering in the sense of this is my union with Christ. It's just walking the path with Christ. It was, let me prove 
how worthy I am of Christ. So I'll suffer for him. I'll be defeated for him. Weirdly, it almost returns back often to a pre-cross, pre-justification. I need to make sure that it becomes a works righteousness. It's a virtue signaling to God. It becomes very easy to have a victim mentality. Defeatism, standing in one place. You see this again, Christians, uh, it's very easy to get into this conflict avoidance or fear management. It's been three years since COVID hit. I think we saw this in bold and center relief to where many Christians just said, well, I don't know what to do, so I'm just going to be defeated all the time, as opposed to walking with the Lord and, and taking courageous stands at times or walking wisely. I read an article recently by a well-known uh, Reformed scholar, and he was reflecting on all the difficulties they had as a church dealing with the pandemic. They were in Canada. But it was interesting I don't doubt that they were dealing with issues. I mean, there was a lot of, it sounds like, a lot of disunity on their elder board, which, is, which is, was expected. But he came away from that, and he talked about um, how hard the suffering was because they dealt with disunity. But he compared himself to the other churches in Canada who were standing up for the faith against the government. And he talked about how hard it was to just obey all the mandates and do all these other things because it was really hard to meet without masks. But there was no reflection and all that said, look, here's some things we do differently. Some of the suffering, we maybe we weren't well prepared. And here's where we want to prepare ourselves better so we don't have to suffer in a defeated type of way. So what it became was a badge of honor. Look at how bad we suffered because we wore these masks all the time. Versus what would have said, time out a second. And then he admitted in the article that they were all bunk and all the masks were bunk and all this size. Okay, well then what are you going to do differently for the next time? But it almost becomes a, a spiritual, pietistic badge of honor, right? Is that the type of suffering Christ is talking about? So we can either, suffering can either be seen in a type of false works righteousness, either in the positive, look at how much I'm suffering for the Lord, or as a cosmic victim. Oh, I'm just going to be defeated all the time, and this is the type of suffering. The Bible says you're not to suffer as an evildoer. There's a type of suffering that we as Christians should not you know, we don't, we don't want to be weird for the sake of being weird. We're not obnoxious for the sake of being obnoxious. Um, if, you're a, if you're a Christian and you, know, you get in trouble at work from your employer, you always do want to evaluate, wait, am I in trouble because I'm a Christian and I was doing the righteous thing? Or maybe I was lazy and I actually need to be rebuked over this. Right? I don't get to, to, you know, as a Christian, we should be most aware of those things. But here's the crucial thing. And friends, this is so, you, you cannot miss this. If you miss this, you'll fall into those earlier traps I talked about. We do not suffer apart from Christ to prove ourselves to Christ or anybody else. We suffer with him in union with Christ. For what? For glory. Current glory, but ultimately future glory. Here's the analogy. When a child follows his parent through the woods on a hike, the parent may be able to walk down the path really easily, but a little child is going to hit every bump, run into every rock. If you brought your kids out in the deep woods, maybe tapping for maple syrup. You know, it's hard enough as an adult when it's knee deep and it's tiring, but you bring your little guys along and it's waist deep on them. And they notice it even more than you do, right? When a runner begins to train, running always hurts. But it hurts more when you begin to train. 
But then if you run a race, you realize it hurts at the beginning, it hurts in the middle, and it certainly hurts at the final kick. The whole goal of it is there's a certain amount of suffering in the toil. Here, in union with Christ, suffering is necessary. It's the paradigm we should operate in. It is the clothing which accompanies obedience. Look at verse 18 again. This inheritance will be ours provided we suffer with him. Provided that we walk this path. Provided, the weight, of course, on the word provided is, of course we would do this. Of course, as a Christian, we would be willing to do this. Why? We are fellow heirs with Christ. And the inheritance guaranteed, as long as we suffer with him, for what? Of course we do it. Why? Because the suffering is, the bumps and bruises we get along the way, one are incomparable with the knowledge that no true harm can befall the Christian. Our inheritance is already guaranteed in heaven, but also the promise that if we walk in obedience and suffering, there is something incomparable, and that's what? Future glory. It's an either or here. Do you want future glory? Then suffer with Christ today. With him. Do you want future glory? Then cast off the sins that so easily entangle. It's an either or. It's an option as it's presented here. Is, so here's maybe the, another way of saying it. Is your sin worth the trade-off? Is the immediate pleasures of sin worth the trade-off? Is your bitterness worth the trade-off? Are excuses? Are all the activities that our kids could be involved in that would pull us away from the body of Christ or pull us away from obedience to the Lord, are they worth the trade-off of future glory? Is our fear of man worth it? We live in avoiding conflict all the time. We tend to suffer, don't we, as long as we can do it on our terms. As long as it doesn't interfere with our pride. Friends, people's approval, our own comfort, our unwillingness to ever admit we're wrong, those are strong pulls. It's hard to change and suffer for the Lord, especially if we're used to conflict avoidance our whole lives. There's a strong pull of the flesh, of the heart. Is it worth it? Here Paul compares sufferings, but he doesn't even define or itemize them. Is it worth it? Here it's not even comparable. There's a future glory, an inheritance, a reward. Glory here is described as a weight, a longing, a perfection, a reflection of that which is both greater and good. Thursday night, I got a text from Andy Moritz at 9.45. Of course, I was in bed already. Thanks, Andy. But he sent me a picture of, um, well, I'm glad he did, by the way. This is no rebuke on Andy. He sent me a picture of the northern lights. I had no idea they were out. So we go outside, and he got better pictures than I did. Uh, we got the hill on our north side. But we got to see many of us for the first time, in, I, as long as I can remember, the last 15 years at least, this glorious display of God's creation. Why did so many people, regardless of their... Christian affiliation, take pictures and post it all over social media of the northern lights of Minnesota? Why? Because there's something to be in awe of. There's a glory in that. There's a reflection of the creator, something greater. Something's different than what we were seeing on television or reading, you know, in our book as we're going to bed. It was worth losing sleep over, right, for a view of this glory. Glory is chapter 1 of Genesis 1, where we see a well-ordered universe and a well-ordered creation that is here on earth in the garden, where everything is working as it should, where 
plants and animals and um, human beings are in their right and proper order, where man and woman are naked and unashamed, where they had the presence of God without sin, where they were um, every day working hard and yet working without embarrassment or regret, where they did not know sin and those nagging feelings of guilt or longing, where they did not know jealousy or covetousness or regret. That was glory upon the earth, God's created glory. And now the text turns. What is glory? What will it be? Verse 19, for the creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. And here, friends, something in this text entirely different happens, something maybe we did not expect. I would expect Paul to go on and on about all the different types of sufferings we're going to face. But instead, notice what he does here. We are transported from suffering, from justification, to restoration, from looking inwardly at ourselves, to looking from the high mountains to the vision of God's greater and perfect plan and glory. And in its context, verse 17 and 18 is part one. Suffering in part two is glory. But what Paul does here is he expands not only the, our view of glory, but our understanding of his plan altogether. The gospel. See, friends, we are so prone to reduce the gospel, particularly, I think, as Americans, to individualistic terms, right? Because that's how we think, right? It's me and Jesus. Am I justified before Christ? I go to church. It's my faith, and certainly there, there's a true sense of that, right, in Scripture. And yet, that is a, that's a highly limited view of what the gospel actually accomplished. He saves sinners, but let me say in this passage, his plan is to save and restore far more than sinners. Meaning this, there's a cosmic plan of the gospel. And here in this passage, right after he's talking about glory or suffering, is where Paul chooses to insert what I think is one of the clearest and greatest passages in all of scripture, Romans chapter 8. This is going to give us a vision not only for our life, but for the totality of the universe and what happened when Jesus Christ came to earth and rose again. The sons of God you and I are warriors in a battle, but the battle is not merely for individual me or even the church alone, for my own personal Jesus. It's cosmic. It's for all of creation. The creation here, notice in the next several verses, five times we see the word the creation. It's personified. What we mean this is all of the cosmos that we saw in Genesis 1, everything created by God. Friends, we are reminded here that creation is good. Rebellion is bad. But creation is good and God has not rejected his created order. For the creation itself, verse 20, was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope, verse 21, that creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Now, what is Paul doing? He is now transporting us, and he's given an entire scope of all of Scripture, from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation at the very end. And what he's telling us is this. Is your suffering worth it? Well, 
Here's God's total plan of the, of, of the gospel. We need to be reminded here, friends, that when Adam and Eve sinned, something terrible happened. But it wasn't merely that they were cut off from God. It was the entire creation was affected. Why is this? You see, Adam was a regent. He was meant to be governor over the world. He was the vice lord of all of creation. He was created by God. He was under God, but he ruled over the world. He is the only one. Him and Eve were the only ones who were image bearers. They were different than the rest of creation. The scariest, largest animal that we've seen or has not yet been discovered in the depths of the ocean is incomparable to a human being. Animals are not eternal. They are not given God's image. But we need to understand when Adam sinned, his sin affected the whole world. Why is this? When individuals sin, it's bad. But when a governor sins, it affects everybody under his care. In one way, one could describe the results of the Revolutionary War that we fought against Britain as a tale of two types of generals. The British generals, and when they shirked their duty, when they were more worried about their pomp and circumstance and everything else, when their heart wasn't in it, how it affected all their soldiers and the outcome versus the American generals, like Washington and some of those who were willing to sacrifice everything to be free. You know this. When somebody who's in charge, when you've got a bad, when the Bible, when the Bible says when you have a bad leader, everybody groans. Everybody under him groans. Everything is off. When Adam sinned, it had a, a corrosive effect upon the entirety of everything under his chaos or care. No longer was the person there to lead creation. He was hiding in the woods, naked and ashamed, lying and being deceived. Creation was without a human lord or general. And you know soldiers in a battle without a general are chaos. It's every man for himself. Friends, what we see here from Scripture is Adam's rebellion set off a chain reaction. God cursed the world because of Adam's rebellion. And in the curse, we see chaos. Things decay and die, it says here. Animals are at war with one another. Here it says everything was corrupted. Meaning poison entered the world and nothing was pure anymore. The world was led by false religions competing with the creation story. Erasing creational norms and distinctions through rebellious recreationism. You notice every false religion has a creation story. Has a story of humanity and answers to humanity's problem. Every one of them tries to compete with God's original created order. Every one of them is wrong. Like a ship crossing the sea in a storm. You may make it, but it's hard effort going against the grain and the wind. So the question is, what is the gospel? Here, we might say, what is the gospel not? What well, certainly is not limited to Jesus died for me only. Or the gospel only exists in my heart. We call this, under, the technical term is under-realized eschatology. So meaning, the individualistic me and Jesus does not take into account the full paradigm of what happened. 
It focuses on the defeat at the cross, but not the victory of the resurrection. To that end, Romans 8, 18-25 blows us apart. The creation stated five times. We sing the old song, I am in the Lord's army. Yes, sir, but why? For what? For the cosmos. God is restoring all things. And God's image bearers are now set again in the place. The curse has been broken. You and I can live like Adam never lived after he sinned. We are clothed in the righteousness of the Lord. I am included when my destiny was turned by the justification of Christ for me. By his forgiveness and adoption, my suffering in Christ has a greater effect upon the cosmos. Look at this, verse 21. The creation itself, here's the hope, will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom and glory of the children of God. At the cross, but ultimately at the resurrection of Christ, something happened. A hinge was turned. The engines were reversed. Instead of things being made worse, things are being made better. A door was opened at the resurrection. History began to head somewhere. Creation is restored. We're going to see further on, it's, it's, it's the beginning of harvest time. Douglas Wilson writes this, The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was an eruption from the end of history right in the middle of history. Let me repeat what he says. See, we often think about restoration like someday in heaven, right? Somewhere. The death, but here we see the word, he uses his first fruits. We, we get to see this now, right? Wilson says this again, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ was an eruption from the end of history right in the middle of the history. The beginning of the end of the world happened 2,000 years ago. Now Christ was raised in a very specific way, Wilson writes. He had a grave, and after he rose from the dead, that grave was empty. We are told in many places that this event was the down payment of our salvation. And our salvation extends from the purposes of the Father in eternity past all the way up to our own individual resurrection. So Christ was raised from the dead. The Spirit of God was given to us to serve as an earnest money guarantee that the very same thing was going to happen to us. Verse 22 and 23. What do we know? What do we see around us? We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirits groan inwardly as we wait, eagerly await adoption as sons, the redemption of the body. What we need to understand here is this. What do we already have? What is ours already? A couple metaphors. Metaphors that Paul gives here are childbirth and harvest time. We'll talk about childbirth first. This might be closer to some of you than others. Right now is the groaning time. A woman who is about to give birth, who is pregnant, who is getting closer and closer to her due date, is she a mother now, or will she be a mother when the baby is born? That's crucial, because that's the metaphor here. The answer is the groaning is evidence that she already is a mother. It just hasn't happened, been fully realized yet. But all of the created order of the baby being born, it's all but guaranteed. The baby is alive and living in her, and she's going through the normal stages of birth. So she's already a mother, and yet she's not yet a mother, Right? It's not fully been revealed. She may not know what the baby looks like. You know, nowadays, you, you may know the, the, the sex of a baby, but on that, you really don't know. But she's prepared. She knows that what comes out is not going to be a... 
it's not going to be an animal. It's not going to be a lump of coal. It's going to be a living, breathing human being just like her. Probably will look like her or look like the father or a combination of both. It's 100% dad and 100% mom. But right now, it's the time of pain. If you've ever had a sliver, which you all have, you know that you had, you know, a tiny little piece of wood can hurt a whole lot. And you leave it long enough and it hurts. I mean, it is amazing how every nerve in your body can just be kind of run through that one little sliver. And you know that as you take out the tweezers or whatever it is you, you, you take a sliver out with, you know that the closer and closer you get to extracting it, the more and more it hurts because you're, the skin around it is starting to hurt more. You're, you're bothering that irritated skin. But there's a certain moment that right when you yank it out, there's a huge amount of relief, right? There's, 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 you have to, and this is what I say to our kids when we go through, um, they get slivers out, because I'm the sliver puller outer in our family. I say, yeah, it's going to hurt a little bit more now, but it'll hurt a whole lot more if I don't get it out. Yes, it has to hurt now, but there will be an instant relief once this baby's out. So are, are we... Have we received the glory? Will we receive it just then? Or have we already received it? Well, the answer is yes and yes. It will be a future, but it's also a present past. And why? Based on what Christ did when he rose from the dead. Remember, friends, the cross matters. But so does the resurrection. Here the focus is on the resurrection. Why? Death was defeated. The curse was broken. The end of history it already happened at Christ. We look backwards to go, history is marching forward to God's glory. Sense. Nothing else has to happen except Christ returns. There's no more sacrifices that need to be made. Death was defeated. God views his creation differently now. Here it says we have the first fruits. What are the first fruits? Well, you know what first fruits are if you garden. They're that initial plant, that initial apple, that initial fruit that comes out that you're so excited to see and maybe it's a little puny, it's a little small but it's the real deal and you know that it is only a preview to what will be an expanded harvest of the same thing. What will now be one little tomato will soon be a whole bunch of tomatoes. What will now be one little flower will soon be a whole garden of flowers. You get to taste the first fruit and it's the real deal but you know that it won't sustain you long term but it's only leading to something better and better and better. So friends, what do we own? What do we gain possession of at our new birth? When we were born again by the power of the Spirit, we gain new life in the resurrection. Why? When Jesus Christ rose, the curse was broken, death was defeated. All the prophecies were fulfilled in Christ. So therefore, the Christian both groans and hopes here. Right? From last week in Romans, we cry, Abba, Father, with confidence in our Lord. In verse 17 18, we suffer, but yet we also groan, but it's not a type of groaning that's hopeless groaning. It's the type of groaning that's anticipation of waiting. That's why there is no mother who's, who, who has any sort of a right senses who said, boy, I just, I love pregnancy and all the suffering that went through childbirth. Oh, that, that felt great, right? No, of course it doesn't. The Bible says it doesn't. It doesn't feel good. But is there any mother that would ever say it wasn't, wasn't worth it? Oh, no. Next time... I'm calling up the stork. They're going to deliver just like in the movies, right? We're just going to have that baby just, you know, brought in by a stork. And, and that's, no. So no, of course it's worth it. Of course it was worth it. Why? Because of what the gift was. Life. 
Life doesn't come without effort. And it's the same with this. And yet, God has ordained it in such a way that when a woman gives, goes through childbirth, you know what's going to happen. It's only a matter of time, so it's worth the wait. In the same way, creation is pregnant. It's a real baby growing. It's inevitable. It may take nine months, give or take a wee bit, but it will be fully realized. Douglas Wilson writes this, This is the world, and the world is pregnant with future glory. So we do not believe that an external force is going to come down at the end of time and zap everything to make it different. We believe he has already come down. He has already rose in the middle of history. Such as things are already different. Just as a pregnant woman is already a mother and yet not a mother. The transformation of the cosmic order is working its way out from the inside. A decaying world was infected. And radical life and infection site was the tomb outside of Jerusalem. Wilson continues on, it is not possible for man to come back from the dead in this world without having forever altered the nature and prospects of this world. Christ rose from the dead 2,000 years ago here, and this is the reason why the world cannot continue on in the same old way. If Christ had wanted to leave the world as it was, he wouldn't have come back from the dead here. He wouldn't have been given a brand new body. He would have been given a brand new body up in heaven and sent us pictures. So this creation, this world, will be delivered from the bondage of corruption and will be ushered into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Here's what he writes. This is why our resurrection is something that the whole created order is longing for. Paul calls it, Paul here calls that the resurrection, calls the resurrection the redemption of the body. He also teaches us that when we are raised, the whole creation order will be put right as well. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is, verse 24 Hope that is not seen is not hope for what, who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Hope here is an adverb. It is action. It is patient hope. Our hope is not a blind hope. It is a promise, a pictured hope. When we take communion today, we actually take real elements. We don't just come up and we don't just pray prayers and imagine that, you know, we're, we're thinking about Jesus. We take real elements. Why? Because they actually represent something real that happened. Jesus Christ actually had a real human body just like you and I. He was encapsulated in the limitations of a human body, and yet his body was actually raised from the dead in this life. Remember, this is what Wilson writes, and this is why it's so important to remember. At the resurrection, Jesus did not die. and was zapped into heaven and then set some prophecies down just to say, hey, look, I'm here. I made it. No, he actually was raised from the dead in his same body. Now it was changed. He had a more glorified body. We see that he could, you know, there's certain elements of he was walking through walls and things that he wasn't doing before, but it was still the same body. He had the scars and everything else in his hand. He was still, had not yet gone to heaven yet with the Lord. That's why we take communion, because it is very real. Your faith and my faith happens in our bodies. Our bodies will be raised, but it's in anticipation that, you know what, what we see here is partially fulfilled. In fact, in some ways, it's, it's been already happened. So if you've been given new birth in Christ, you now have lived with purpose for Christ, where once you were living enslaved to sin, living and heading towards hell. Now, it's not merely that your soul has been given to God in heaven, but your entire body has been changed. Yeah, you might be getting older. It's not like all of a sudden you become a Christian and you miraculously become like Schwarzenegger, you know, and you just become what you're not. 
you're still a man, you're still a woman. You became a Christian as a child, you're still a child. And you're growing and your body might decay as you get older. It will, you'll, you'll, you'll die unless the Lord returns. But yet your bodies now have purposes as God's ambassadors. Where once Adam's body was used, to, he took with his hands and his senses and they ate the forbidden fruit. Now we live for righteousness. Instead of living for self, we live with the created order again restored. We live and we suffer, but we live with purpose. Why all of creation matters. Your body matters. Even if you're getting frail and older, your body matters. Your speech matters. You matter. Why? Because there's an anticipated hope that, you know what? I'm suffering with the Lord, but more than that is happening. It's not merely my suffering. God is doing glory here. He's restoring his creation. We have the first fruits. We can enjoy this. It's a guaranteed hope. So friends, the implication here is that this should change every way in which we live. We as Christians should not live as defeated, guilty people all the time. Even if you're in the, maybe right now you're in a season that is more hard than others. Not that everybody here has the same struggles always at the same time. Maybe it is difficult, but you know it's worth it if you suffer with the Lord. God will teach you much. He will make you more Christ-like through it. But not only this, God has ordained it. But you can live knowing this isn't the way it's always going to be. There will be more sufferings. But now the sufferings are turned to go, this is restoration. These are the sufferings, not as a defeated, oh, this, the, the fruit's all going to be rotten and decayed and the storms are going to come and we're not going to be harvested. These are the first fruits suffering. We've already tasted and seen. And we know that, look, right now we're in the middle of September maybe. And, you know, you get the first fruits. It's not fully October when you get to fully harvest everything, but you have seen part of the harvest. The work goes on. It toils on. God does great things. All of life matters. It began, in, in the context, it began with Jesus Christ. And as we draw to conclusion, let me just summarize. Death entered through one man, Adam. New life was given through one man, Jesus Christ. But more than just new life, all of creation will be restored to its former glory and something even better than that. Death was defeated. Prophecy was fulfilled. For you and I, it begins in our inward self as we believe and trust in the Lord. But then our, 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 our minds are changed. Our, our, our outlook is changed. We hope and now we use our bodies, even in suffering, for the Lord. Why? Because he rose again. Life and glory has been revealed and realized. It is ever increasing. Few implications. Again, in summary, all of life matters. That means when you obey the Lord, when you repent, when you love your body, when you say no to sin, when you say yes to righteousness, God, it matters. Suffering is normal. It is expected and it is part of union with Christ. We participate in suffering because it leads to more glory today, but will usher in future glory. We know that we, when we walk with, we don't know when the end is going to come, but Christ does, and we might as well walk with him. Knowing that, you know, for some, in some strange way, Christ actually uses us. Right? We look back at history in 2,000 years. People have always said, man, this world, you know, it's just getting worse and worse. And, you know, you see bits and pieces of that. But in, in many ways, this world has gotten better and better. The gospel has gone to almost all parts of the world now. God has used his, you know, we, we look and we go, man, you know, there's a lot of wars and conflict. Well, certainly there is. But we've seen a great increase in technology. Diseases that would have killed you 100 years ago are, are now we can, we, can, we can deal with medically. 
Uh, things have improved. Technology has improved. All these things. We're able to harvest things. Now, this doesn't mean that there's not going to be uh, fits and starts, but we get to see God is restoring his creator. That's the right way to think. Whether you think that God's going to come back tomorrow or not, the right way to think is that, look, functionally, let's just think like this. Look, what I do actually matters. God's doing something here, and I can have hope in this. That's how God would have us look. We get images of restoration. We participate in the church. We gather together on God's. We look at one another. We go, look, I may have nothing in common with you other than we're, we're, fellow, we're fellow human beings. But because of Christ, we're doing this together. You've been chosen by God. I've been chosen by God. And now we're part of the family of God. When we participate in Sunday worship, this is just merely a preview. It's actual worship, but it's a preview of the great worship someday. When we participate in our family, when we grow things, when we work hard, it's a preview of someday there will be work and family, but it'll be without conflict and without failure. I don't even know what that looks like. We get, we get pictures from the Garden of Eden. When we make peace with the world and we share the gospel, we do this in anticipation that people are real human beings. They need Christ or else all their work will be in vain as they face God on Judgment Day. But we share the gospel knowing that, that God would save people, that they would also have the joy and the glory of God. So we began today, friends, with suffering. And we end with this cosmic gospel. Let me read one final part as we draw to conclusion. This is from the last battle. I began the sermon with a, a snippet from the line of the witch in the wardrobe, and now the last battle by C.S. Lewis. The term is over. And as he spoke, he no longer looked at them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is only the beginning of the end of stories. And we must truly say, we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. And in their life, in this world, in all their adventures in Narnia, it had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever and ever, which every chapter is better than the one before. Friends, when you take communion today, when we go out today, kids, when you go out today, enjoy God's creation. Love the Lord. Remember, God loved you and I. We may walk at the limp. We may, we may suffer. Sometimes it's for our own stupidity, but we do it in union with Christ in repentance and hope in the glory of God. When you take communion, look to this and remember that Jesus Christ has died for all your sins and they are all paid in full and he rose again. He's sitting in heaven right now. We take these as representatives of his actual physical work and the physical restoration of our bodies and all of creation. Let me pray. Dear Father in heaven, I thank you so much for your gathering together, your church. Your Father, is sin worth it? We say no. Is suffering worth it for you? We say yes. And I thank you for these glorious passages of scripture. Father, will you expand our view of you? Will you give us confidence in you? Will you help us to be disciplined, self-disciplined people? Father, as this week, as we will be tempted in our selfish flesh to say yes to the flesh, either in our inward hearts and covetousness or bitterness or laziness, but Father, even with our bodies, to sin with our words, our actions, our, our, our hearts, I pray, Father, that you would help us to remember these passages and you would fill us again that, God, it is not only 
do you say we should not sin? But there's a reason for that because it's worth it. The opposite, living for your glory will usher in a future glory that's uncomparable. Oh, Father, I pray that you make us competent people in you. In your name we pray, amen.